v peti epizodi podcasta Nač jasen. Um, danes bomo govorili v angliščini, tako da switching to English. Um, All right, hi. Yeah. I'm hi. here too as well. <laughs> and also Dr. Stephen Minger is today with us and we're going to be casually talking about the future of healthcare. <laughs> This is super cool. exciting. <laughs> hi, Stephen. Hey, Nina and Shiga. Great. Thank you very much for, for letting me come on your podcast. I'm Thank you so very much. Very excited about this. It's Thanks. an honor to have it's you. A, it's an honor I to think have you. a short introduction is in order. So who is our guest today? Dr. Stephen Minger is one of the pioneering researchers in human stem cell biology. And re- stem cell. What did I say? Sorry. <laughs> human stem cell biology and regenerative medicine. Over the past 25 years, Stephen's been at the for- forefront of human gene therapy stem and stem cell research. He's the founder of Blue Skies Innovations, uh, a w- company who provides expert analysis in emerging healthcare technologies for biotechnology companies and the investment community in gene cell-based therapies, human tissue fabrication, implementation of robotics, synthetic intelligence, machine brain interfaces, and human human pluripotent stem cell technologies, amongst others. So all of this just sounds super complicated to us. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds super complicated to me as well, I have to say. Wow. Okay, so... um, We were hoping that today you could explain some of the things you, you do um, in a very simple way. Sure, sure. I, I, I will try my best and, and, and you guys are here to help me uh, <laughs> make sure I keep this at a level that, that hopefully uh, everybody can, can relate to. So um, by way of introduction, so I'm a, a, a research scientist or was a research scientist. Um, my initial training was in... Um, neuroscience or brain research. Uh, I did a PhD at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, where we worked on uh, neurodegenerative disorders, brain, brain disorders, with a focus particularly on Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then uh, around 1990, I started to hear about some very cool research that was being uh, done in Sweden, in Lund, where a group of researchers were taking um, patients with, with quite severe Parkinson's disease, and they were transplanting uh, tissue from uh, the brains of aborted fetuses, so humans who are, whose, whose moms decide that they uh, want to uh, terminate, terminate their, their, their pregnancy. And in Sweden in those days, in, like a few countries, uh, you were allowed to donate tissue for research and or for, uh, for clinical use. And so these, these guys in Sweden found that if they took the part of the brain that normally um, is, is degenerating in, in Parkinson's patients, and if you took that part of the brain from these developing embryos, fetuses, and you transplanted it into the brains of, of patients with, with Parkinson's disease, you could essentially not cure them, but you could significantly reduce the severity of their disease. And many of those patients are now more than 30 years post-transplantation and their brains still function without the need for them having to go on Parkinsonian medication. Wow. And, and we, because we have friends and, and family members who have Parkinson's disease, we know how catastrophic this disease is and, and how significant this kind of reversal can be. So on the basis of that, I got very excited about this and I actually went off to uh, La Jolla in, in San Diego on the beach, uh, we called it Uh, lab on the beach, 
and, and I worked on this. And the idea was, instead of having to constantly go back to aborted fetuses for, for, for a source of cells, could we establish cells in the lab that we could expand to unlimited numbers? And instead of treating maybe one patient a year, could we treat thousands of patients a year with, with cells that, that we had created in the lab? And we're not there yet, uh, almost 30 years later, but we're close. Um, the first clinical trials of stem cell therapy in Parkinson's patients that doesn't rely on, on cells from aborted fetuses, will uh, th those clinical trials will start next year. Wow. So yeah. this is how I got into this whole field because, you know, at that time, back in 1992, we really didn't know anything about stem cells. We didn't really know what stem cells were. Um, we we were, had been using bone marrow transplants for a long time in, in people who have uh, leukemia, so for example, uh, which is a blood um, cancer. And so the standard treatment for those patients, if you can find a, a donor, is to destroy their own bone marrow with radiation or with drugs, and then you transplant uh, new bone marrow from somebody who doesn't have leukemia uh, into the person who's had leukemia. And when this works, it's a cure. It's one of the few things that I can actually say cures you. Mm -hmm. Because when this works, your blood cancer never comes back. The problem is obviously, who do you get uh, bone marrow from? How good a match are they immunologically? And, and mm -hmm. so on the one hand, not rejecting it. And on the other hand, not letting it, um, the, new, the new bone marrow and the new immune system uh, attack you as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a, you know, but for people with terminal cancer, this is a, a life-saving therapy. And it, and it, what we discovered is that it, the reason why it works is actually because within the bone marrow that we transplant, there are these rare stem cells in bone marrow that actually, when they divide, which is rare, they ultimately give rise to all the different blood cells that you have in your body. So white blood cells, red blood cells, all the immune cells like T cells and B cells, macrophages, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really complex system. And when we discovered that, that this was the, the, um, the reason why bone marrow was, transplants were successful, it sort of unlocked this whole idea that there are cells in your body that um, actually function as, as like seeds mm -hmm. that give rise to trees. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, you know, if you look at your, at your gut, for example, every day the food going through your body, it basically, uh, and all the, um, you know, metabolizing the food that goes through us, it basically shears the lining of your stomach off and your intestine every day, and it has to be replaced. Mm -hmm. So you have stem cells in your intestine, which we've only discovered in the last maybe 15 years, that actually restore the lining of your, of your gut every day. Uh, think about your skin, mm -hmm. right? If you've ever, like me, had black sheets uh, on your bed before, you, you cannot realize how much skin you lose every day, you know? That has to be replaced every day. Think of your hair. Mm -hmm. um, every day you have to, at least some of us, have to regrow <laughs> your hair every day, right? And so it's estimated that, you know, by the time you're 60 or 70, you basically there are six or eight or ten of you standing next to you made up of all the cells that you've lost over your life that all have to be replenished, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we began to realize that a lot of organs, even in, even in adults, um, have a lot of stem cells, and they have to function in order for us to stay alive.
because they have to replenish tissues every day. I have a question. Are sure. these, um, you said we have stem cells in our gut, in wherever. Are they these different <laughs> variants or can you, let's say, transfer stem cells? Is it cells the from... same cell yeah, everywhere? Yeah. They, are, they are tissue specific. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. gut stem cells will make gut cells, but they won't make hair cells, for example. Yeah. Skin stem cells will make all the different, because we have different, a bunch of different skin cells, right? Mm-hmm. They're just not all the same. But they won't make brain, for example. That makes so, sense. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we call these multipotent in, this, in the sense that they give rise to all the cell types within a particular tissue, but they're, but they're not universal. Mm-hmm. For that, we have a term called pluripotent, which are cells that give rise to all tissues. They only exist for a very, very brief period of time in human development, roughly around day five or six after conception. Ah, okay. Uh, that these, also makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's these, why these the are embryo... the cells in the early blastocyst, mm-hmm. which just before implantation of the embryo into the uterine wall, uh, the embryo undergoes uh, uh, a division into two cell types. One cell type will basically turn into the, to the placenta, which is required for, you know, obviously interaction with the mum. The other second population of cells, which is called the inner cell mass, uh, is what turns into you and I, mm-hmm. right? Amazing. Now those cells we discovered back in the 90s, so after I had left the U.S. and moved to the U.K., we had worked on cells from the, uh, from the aborted embryos for a long time, from aborted fetuses, and realized that that was a dead end. And so we were kind of trying to think about where we could go, and a group, uh, a group in the U.S. in Singapore in 1998 showed that they could take a six-day-old human embryo created by in vitro fertilization. So this is embryos that we create in the dish with sperm and eggs from the, from the, either from a donor or from a couple that has fertility problems. And we, we make, we create embryos in the, in the dish that are generally almost always used for... Uh, for fertility, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and so we put them back into uh, the woman, and, and hopefully it gives rise to a pregnancy. But um, we had shown in, in early in the 80s in the mouse that we could make cell lines from mouse equivalent stage embryos, and we could turn these cells into a, a wide variety of other things. But it had never been done in humans. In 98, these, these groups were able to do it, which got us very excited because we wanted to make cells for therapy. You know, the Parkinson's disease transplants had showed us that you could make cells and transplant them into patients, and we knew this from leukemia as well, and you could, you could get considerable clinical improvement, but where are you going to get the cells? Mm-hmm. And so the unique thing about these pluripotent cells derived from embryos, which we call embryonic stem cells, so you can kind of almost divide the world into embryo stem cells, and adult stem cells, right? The adult stem cells are useful in certain disorders, but they can't make everything. Embryonic stem cells, on the other hand, can make everything. And the other unique property of these cells is you can actually grow them for years and years and years and years. You could make gazillions of cells. Wow. Unlimited number of cells. They are, in essence, immortal. Mm -hmm. Wow, so you guys are working on a cure for, I mean, cure. 
on a thing for immortality. <laughs> well, not necessarily immortality, although you know we can certainly talk about that. But basically, we're look, we're looking at making cells that you can push into different directions. So, you know, cardiac cells um, for heart repair, liver cells to replace somebody's liver uh, for a variety of reasons, new uh, cells that you can put into the eyes of people with macular degeneration, cells that make dopamine for patients with Parkinson's disease. Um, skin, you know, for, for people with severe burns or epidermolysobullosa. You know, in essence, the same starting population of cells, you can basically turn into 300 different cell types if you know how to do it. <laughs> and that's been the real challenge, you know. So, so in, in, 2000, in, in 2000, actually, in, in London, um, after the first two groups had made these cells and, and we had tried to get access to them and couldn't, we successfully petitioned the British government, myself, and some other um, equivalent researchers in the UK. We petitioned the British government to allow us to use human embryos, which was legal even in 2000, um, to use them in research to make stem cell lines. And we were successfully, uh, we successfully uh, had an act in parliament extended to allow us to do this. And then we were given a license by the fertility regulator to use donated embryos, so couples who were undergoing fertility treatment who had extra embryos that they didn't want to give to another couple and were willing to donate to research, they could donate them to us and we could try to make stem cell lines from them. And we were the first group in Europe to do this in 2002, probably, I don't know, sixth or eighth in the world. So, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. Amazing. Was this sounds so... Pretty cool. You know, it took a long... It took, it took two years from the time that we were given approval till we were actually allowed to do it because we were immediately taken to court <laughs> um, <clears throat> by people who were opposed to us doing this. Uh, and, you know, uh, there, there, was, there was a lot of opposition, I have to say, to this. People thought that, you know, we were... First of all, a lot of people don't like uh, in vitro fertilization in the first instance because they don't like the idea of creating babies in a mm -hmm. dish. You know, you're playing with God and... And actually, the, the, the embryology group that we worked with, um, Professor Peter Brody's group at King's in London, um, he had trained with the guy who was the, basically the father of in vitro fertilization, uh, Bob Edwards, who, who actually won the Nobel Prize for this in about 2014, I think, 15. Um, you know, and so Peter was a, a really well-respected embryologist, and he had warned us, you know, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of opposition to it. To this because we get a lot of opposition just from making embryos in the first place and then on top of it you know you want to use them to make cell lines as a matter of fact my long-term partner at that time uh, we basically split up because she said to me I don't like the idea of you doing this I think it's technical technological cannibalism Wow. <laughs> and I, I was like well, you know, oh yeah very harsh but I, I you know we were committed to doing this because yeah. I you know Without the cell lines, we were never going to be able to progress therapy. Mm -hmm. And so these, you know, being able to make these cells um, was really crucial. And on the back of that, we helped establish the UK Stem Cell Bank, which became a, everybody. And we actually got um, this put into the law as well, that anyone who made uh, cell lines from individual embryos would have to, once, you know, once the lines were established and we had scaled them up, each research group, and ultimately I think there were 12 teams in, in the UK who had a license to do this, we were all required by law to put cells into the UK Stem Cell Bank 
and the bank would grow them up and, and freeze them and bank them. And they could be distributed to research groups all over the world for free. Mm-hmm. We made sure that there was never going to be a, a monetary um, you know, price for, for these cell lines for, for other researchers because we, we couldn't get access to the cell lines in 98 when they were first made. And the whole idea of setting up the bank was to make cells available to researchers mm-hmm. to really progress the work. You know, yeah. I have to say my university wasn't so pleased. They were thinking <laughs> that this was going to be a great source of revenue for them. Mm-hmm. But we were adamant that we didn't want the cells to be sold. You know, we wanted them to be available for free. That probably l- let you progress faster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And because maybe, being, being the only group in the world who knows how to do something yeah. is, is, you know, you're never going to push the field. You need thousands of, of labs to do yeah. this. And so, you know, so we, we, it was something I was quite proud of setting up the bank because, you know, the, the, the UK government funded it. Um, it was not for profit. And, it, and when a lot of countries, you, you either would, they wouldn't allow you to make stem cell lines or you could use cells, but under highly restrictive conditions, it allowed us to really push the field in a way that, that meant it was possible for other people to, to do research where they wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. So I think it really, I think it did progress things really rapidly. Nice. So, yeah. okay, now uh, this is one big part of uh, where health care is going. And in, in, in how long or how many more years of research do you guys need uh, to make these things more... Um, I don't know, uh, uh, is available a proper word or maybe more common? Or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, the, you know, when, when I started in this, you know, 30 years ago now, <laughs> shows you how old I'm getting, um, 30 years ago, you know, there really weren't cell therapies. You know, we had bone marrow transplantation in, in cancer and we had um, organ transplantation, you know, heart, lung, liver, kidneys. But that was about it. You know, cell transplantation really didn't exist. And now what you see is if, if you go into the databases, there are thousands of clinical trials all over the world using a variety of different stem cells. I mean, most of them are adult tissue stem cells because, in essence, they're easier to obtain. You know, I can do a, I can actually take a, a, I can actually take a, a small sample of your fat. And if you, but neither of you have any, <laughs> um, and I, I can digest that down, and I can harvest stem cells from your from your fat that I could use to make cartilage. I could use to make bone. We can use them in in, in um, orthodontic indications where you need to rebuild some bone uh, in the mouth uh, wow. after you've had some teeth taken out, um, and and that's pretty commonplace now. Mm-hmm. It's it's not totally approved yet. A lot of it's still done under under what we call clinical trials. So mm-hmm. we're we're testing to make sure that the therapies work. Um, and then you know there's there's a whole host of other studies taking cells again from the bone marrow, for example, and using them as a potential therapy in stroke, uh, in 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 heart disease, um, and in other clinical indications in graft versus host disease. Here in, in Slovenia, we've, we've actually used cells from the bone marrow or from the umbilical cord, which have also been banked. They're, they're pretty equivalent populations of cells in treating people, for example, who, who, had, uh, who went on ventilators because of, of COVID mm-hmm. um, you know, to try to reduce the scarring uh, in their lungs from um, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which, which many people get from... Um, from from coronavirus, 
Um, and so, you know, there are trials going on all over the place. You know, but, and, but the problem, again, as I said at the beginning, the problem with those cells is, is they're very restricted in their use because they can make some stuff, but they can't make everything. Mm -hmm. And so now what we're seeing are, after, you know, 25 years, 20 years of, of working with these pluripotent cells that can make everything. I mean, imagine you're trying to make only heart or only skin from cells that basically, if they were in their normal environment, would create a whole embryo, right? Mm -hmm. So trying to f push them to only make the cell types that you want, you know, in, in, in relatively high numbers and in relative purity and not make other stuff it has taken a long time. But now we have clinical trials, for example, in age-related macular degeneration, which is um, a common age-related blindness that will affect almost all of us if we live to be 90 years old. Mm -hmm. Many people are completely blind before they're 80, um, and it's the, most, it's the most common form of blindness. Um, we're in, we're in mid, mid, the middle of big clinical trials to put cells back into the eye, which are showing to be effective in giving people back their vision. It's not approved yet. It's, there's still a ways to go, but it looks really, really promising. We're beginning to make cardiac cells um, that we can use to repair heart in people who are in heart failure. We're beginning to make liver cells. There are clinical trials in type 1 diabetes of making new insulin-producing cells for people who have a, a very unstable form of diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, wow. So, you know, the cells make insulin. People can maybe come off of insulin. Again, we have clinical trials for this. Um, clinical trials in acute spinal cord injury, which have shown some real, some real advantages. Um, we don't know how well they work yet. Um, this is still, you know, phase two clinical trials. Mm -hmm. um, and next year in Parkinson's disease, and every year, more and more uh, of, of these therapies, um, you know, go into clinical trial. And again, they're made from essentially the same population of cells. You're just pushing them in different directions. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so, you know, uh, asking the question, like, how long will it take is sort of, <laughs> as we say in English, asking how long is a piece of string, you know, yeah. it, the, the, you know, this just goes on and on. And, you know, and, and then that's just cell replacement. You know, there's, one of, the, one of the really exciting things that's happening in science these days is you're starting to see a convergence or a, a gathering together of a lot of different disciplines. So it's not just biology. It's now biology with engineering, with computing, with electronics. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about bioengineering and we're talking about biofabrication. So, you know, actually manufacturing tissues rather than just, you know, squirting in some cells and seeing what happens. We're actually talking about, you know, printing and manufacturing pieces of tissue, you know, so like a left, a left ventricle uh, piece of heart or, you know, a bone that's been shaped. Um, you know, we, we take, we take, this is called tissue engineering, but for example, if you need a new, a new hip, we will image, you know, your hip because your hip is obviously of a different size, say, than than, than Jigga's, and uh, so we image your hip. We feed it into a computer program. Computer program comes up with a diagram of your hip, and we then print that using a three D printer with cells into this matrix. Wow! Put it in a bioreactor, let it get, uh, you know, mature. 
and then implant it into you. And we're thinking of doing this for cartilage, for bone, for you know making parts of the face, mm-hmm. um, a replacement tissue and heart, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, and then in the brain, for example, we we have quite a not a not a huge number of people, but there's a number of people walking around who have already have electronic stimulators in their brain. Uh, again, in Parkinson's disease and people with really severe uh, manic depressive illnesses, uh, catatonia. Um, you know, so we they can regulate their brain activity mm-hmm. uh, outside the body using their phone, for example. Amazing. <laughs> um, and now we're starting to think about this. I mean, I have a number of friends. Again, my background is in brain science, but I have a number of friends who are doing a lot of really exhaustive brain mapping at the moment, trying to figure out how speech is processed in the brain, how we understand language. Um, and they're actually analyzing the electrical activity in the brain. And already a group in San Francisco has shown that they can, with a stimulator in the brain, they can stimulate um, electrical activity in the brain that's translated into sound in the person's hearing without the sound being going through their ear. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I, yeah, I, uh, sorry, yeah. They hear sound based on electrical activity. I've... uh... Yeah, you don't, yeah, like you don't hear sound, you just get some wave activity but, but in the brain you but hear. you do hear it it's almost like um some um no prisluhi um prisluh i don't know <laughs> um when you see things but they're not there exactly it, it's like a, like thing. a like a visual hallucination yeah a hallucination that was, like i aud- lost the word it's almost like an auditory yeah. hallucination this, yeah. this reminds me um so I, I was actually listening to a podcast with Elon Musk about Neuralink. And yeah. this is what he was saying. Like, yeah. the Neuralink is going to allow us to just look at each other and we're going to hear each other and we're not going to talk. And yeah. this, this is the same principle. Yeah, I mean, uh, except except I think he's, he's a little bit out there. Um, that, that was my next yeah, question yeah, about the I, Neuralink. Yeah, yeah I don't, I mean, it, uh, I'm, you know, I'm the people I'm referring to are doing really, really really significantly serious scientific studies where, you know, they're going in and putting grids of electrodes uh, into on the surface of the dura. So you open the skull and you basically put this on the surface of the brain and you record for up to two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. These are in a, a live, awake patients um, who are being mapped for, for epilepsy, basically. Um, in, the, in the left side, the left front part of the brain called the temporal lobe, which is where almost all of our high real estate is in the brain. Mm-hmm. So this is where your speech center is, uh, your language processing center, um, your motor strip that controls how we move and feel mm-hmm. um, across all of our body. All of the stuff is, is really heavily localized here on the left and almost everyone's, few people have it on the right side, but almost everybody's on the left. And if you have seizures there as well, it's a really bad situation because we can't just go in and, and do kind of normal neurosurgery to try to remove the area that's, that's causing the seizures without damaging some of these other really important brain regions. And so what, what a lot of these groups are doing, and this is work I did back in the 80s um, in Minnesota, is you go in and you try to map out where these different functions are and kind of compare them to where the seizures are coming from. And if you're lucky, you, there's enough of a space 
and we're talking in brain science, you know, a couple of millimeters if you're lucky, <laughs> um, where the seizures are here and the speech centers here and the motor strips here. And then we can go in and we can basically microsurgically remove the seizure area or at least part of it to try to reduce the severity of the seizures without damaging these other things. So now, you know, from wow. the 80s to, to last <laughs> month, you know, these guys are getting more and more and more sophisticated. And the mapping that we're able to do is even in much, much finer detail. So the idea that most of us have is that, so for example, if you have somebody who's had a fairly significant stroke, again, in the left side, um, and they've lost speech, what we call aphasia, could you put in a stimulator elsewhere in the brain where when they know what they want to say, but, but the, the connections between you know, the brain and the, and the vocal cords have been lost, that would the stimulator allow them to speak? Mm -hmm. um, because you, you're now using the stimulator to give the same electrical activity in a different part of the brain that then is trained. Or in somebody, for example, who's partially uh, paralytic because of stroke or spinal cord damage. Um, and to give you some idea of how sophisticated this is, you could, you could go onto YouTube and you could look at some work by a group in Luzon uh, called uh, EPFL. Um, if you go into YouTube and you type in EPFL and uh, walking, you will see that we're now putting stimulators into the brains of people who have had uh, long-standing spinal cord damage, who are regaining the ability to stand, and in some cases even to walk, using again a combination. This is purely electronic, but mm -hmm. it's obviously electronic stimulation that's working in a biological system. Yeah, we saw we saw yeah. this video. It's amazing. It is. It's it's. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet these guys and they're, they're, they've been working on this for a long, long time. And they're finally getting to the point where it actually is starting to bear some fruit. And these are, these are people for which, you know, if, you're, you, know, if you have a, a, a significant spinal cord trauma in your lower, lower back, um, you lose bowel function, you lose uh, the ability to, to lulu, you lose, <laughs> um, generally you lose sexual function, you have a lot of blood pressure problems with your lower extremities. Um, and we, as you know, as scientists and clinicians, we have nothing to offer them. And mm -hmm. so, you know, to take somebody who's been, you know, in a wheelchair for five, 10, 15 years, and they regain the ability to stand uh, and, and maybe walk, you know, they'll, they'll never, you know, maybe never make it up tree love, but, you know, it's, 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 it fundamentally changes their life and it changes yeah. their health. Yeah. Um, and then even, even for people who have, Spinal cord injury much higher up, where they've where they've essentially, um, you know, they they still have some residual hand function, but it's very impaired. Uh, again, EPFL has, has made a stimulator that they use higher up, which in some cases, one guy I I, I saw has actually regained the ability to play the guitar, where he before wow. he could barely hold a, a glass of water, mm -hmm. and he had no dexterity in his fingers at all. And another woman who's uh, regained the ability to paint and paint very, very well. And again, you know, from an, from an electronic device implanted into their spinal cord. So, you know, I, I'm very excited about what's happening because I think we're starting to see all these different disciplines come together. Where before, you know, biologists kind of worked in, a, in isolation over here and engineers worked over there and the clinicians were over here. I think there's a lot of convergence of, of all these different disciplines together. So, uh, and that's a lot of what I try to work on now is, you know, now that I'm 
just really a, you know, a consultant, um, you know, gentleman scientist, I guess, <laughs> uh, sitting, sitting in my flat in Ljubljana. Um, I try to keep an eye on what's happening in science and see how all this stuff fits together. Try to, try to identify the new trends, um, new scientific areas that are coming out thinking about how, you know, artificial intelligence or synthetic intelligence is going to impact um, robotics, all this kind of stuff. So it's not just a biology world anymore. It's, uh, But it's all, it's all based on stem cells. Not, well, not really. I mean, it's, it's based on, I mean, I'm, I'm very focused on healthcare, right? It's, yeah. it's the whole reason why I got into this stuff years ago was because I, you know, I, I was, I was very, interested in human disease, but I wanted to figure out how we could do something about it. So it's all based on human physiology of which stem cells plays a part. Mm -hmm. um, but, in, but in principle, it's, it's not purely, specifically, totally stem cells. I think for cell replacement, it is stem cells because, you know, I can't just take a piece of heart from one person and transplant it into another. Yeah. To make a heart replacement, I need a source of cells, and then you know you have to look at what the options are, uh, and there aren't very many, and so ultimately we end up going back to, to to stem cells, and 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 you guys will I think you'll find this cool. One of the one of the things that's really kind of changed the whole thing is, you know, the reliance on on let's say stem cells from embryos. You know, there are people who are fundamentally opposed to the ethics of that. Um, we have issues about. Um, you know, using the cells in patients because the cells are not genetically identical to the person you're going to put them in. You know, mm -hmm. the, the cells come from an embryo and it may be, you know, of a completely different racial, um, you know, background than you. And so the cells would be rejected. So many years ago, about 10 years ago now, a little bit more, um, a really brilliant guy in, in Japan, uh, Shina Yamanaka, was interested in, you know, what is it about stem cells derived from embryos that can turn into everything but why can't blood stem cells turn into everything or why can't liver stem cells turn into everything and Sheena identified uh, after many years of work that there are four genes and only four genes that are required and he can take and, and now everybody can take any cell from uh, a skin cell a blood cell and you can basically make it into an equivalent of an embryonic stem cell from everybody. Now, the, I think this is too complicated. I, I don't understand this anything is called, anymore. This is called induced pluripotent cells. This means I can take your mom or your grandmom, I can take a cell from her, put four genes into it, and I can basically make a cell line to you, your mom, your grandmom, that when it's done and dusted is equivalent to an embryo stem cell line, but now it's genetically matched to the person that the cell came from. And I can turn it into any cell type. So that's super helpful. For, yeah, that, for that means you have your own. the need for yeah. actual embryos yeah. to yeah. extract I mean, the cells from. I, mean, I, I think we still need embryos, you know, for, for <laughs> some things as well, but, but in, you know, because there, there are still some issues about what, what are these cells really? Are mm -hmm. they really embryo cells or are they, are they a mimic? Mm -hmm. You know, ah, an avatar, okay, okay, an yeah. avatar. <laughs> but in principle, they look like, they behave like embryo stem cells, except now they're yours. <laughs> so you could make your own heart cells, you could make your own skin cells, you could make your own liver cells. And with that, I have to move. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, and we're back from our break. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, Stephen, we were wondering um, about oh, you mentioned artificial and in, in artificial intelligence before, um, and of course, the obvious question to someone who doesn't know anything about is about this is is Terminator a possible <laughs> scenario? <laughs> is AI something we should be afraid of? I, you know, this is this is a really hot. Uh, discussion in, in the scientific community at the moment. Um, so just to back up just slightly, you know, the whole idea of artificial intelligence is, is can we can we create computer systems that basically function in an equivalent manner to a human brain? And that, that really is the essence of this. And, you know, people refer to it by a whole bunch of different terms, you know, the singularity, um, other things. Um, so, it, 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 I mean, it, you know, machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, I call it synthetic intelligence because as a neurobiologist, I think we already have machines that are pretty freaking smart um, <laughs> that, you know, mimic human thought in some ways, not, not in every way. Um, we're, we're a long way from having something that, you know, could be equivalent to a human brain. Um, Computer systems still have a lot of problems in um, decision making. They're very good at pattern recognition, for example. So now, you know, we're using synthetic intelligence or, or AI, let's just call it for ease. Um, we're using AI a lot in, in diagnosis uh, of disease. So, for example, um, DeepMind, who's probably one of the world's leaders in AI um, and part of Google, um, DeepMind was based in London and, and you know, came pretty good friends, actually. So they're, they've pioneered, like, for example, with, with Moorfields Eye Hospital in, in London, the ability to diagnose retinal uh, disease based mm -hmm. on scans of the retina with the same accuracy as human um, retinal experts, but 10,000 times faster. Wow. So in one day, they can do the equivalent of, you know, thousands of patients mm -hmm. um, where you would need a, you know, a bank of, of retinal specialists do the same thing. Um, the systems, you know, that I'm seeing, I mean, there's a, there's a big push now to, to use AI in, in, you know, designing new drugs, uh, in trying to understand how proteins fold uh, mm -hmm. and, and how we can, how we can manipulate them because protein folding is a very, very serious problem. It takes massive computing power to do this. Um, because of the uh, almost the infinite numbers of ways that a, a protein can fold up and how it does it, we don't really fully understand. And AI, this is a big area which will allow us to make new drugs, new proteins for a variety of use. You know, designing new molecules, for example, uh, to treat disease. Um, it, and they're good at recognizing cats, you know, but, <laughs> but it, it gets a little bit blurry when you show it a tiger, right? Uh -huh, okay. So, so okay. you know, so the, kiss, the systems are really great at, at, at recognizing patterns, you know, and it's based on how much uh, a database you give them, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the designer set, uh, as it were. Um, but to give you an indication of what, of the power of this, there's a, there's a famous story about DeepMind, again, a company, uh, and a Chinese game called Go. 
And so go, if you've, if you've never tried to play it, uh, give it a try. It's, it's the Is hardest that game. the one that's like chess, but 10 times harder? <laughs> so it's a, it's a board of 19 by 19 squares. Okay, so you have 19 yeah. across the top, 19. Uh, and you start out with 159 or 160 pieces, depending on if you're blue or black. And they're just basically pebbles, big, mm -hmm. big stones. <laughs> and when you start the game, the board is empty. The number of possible moves at the beginning of the game is 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, 359 times. Why would anyone want to play this? Because <laughs> it's, 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 really, it's a really interesting game. And, that, and basically the way the game goes is you try to, by laying these stones down, you try to encircle your competitor and mm -hmm. take his stones. The game is the most intricate game I've ever, I mean, chess is, chess is baby food compared to this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so Deep Mind, when they, they I don't know, I, so Dem, Demis and, and Mustafa, who are two of the founders who I've met, they, one of the things that they decided to do when they first started creating Deep Mind, this artificial intelligence system, was to teach it how to play video games, because this is what little kids do, right? Little kids learn to play video games. And so they started out teaching it the, the games that, that we used to play back when we were teenagers, you know, Tetris and Pong and Mario Brothers. And, you know, and, and DeepMind was really good at some things, but very bad at others. You know, there were just some games it just didn't get. And then, of course, you know, uh, Deep Blue came along and beat Kasparov at, at chess. And so, you know, taught computers how to play chess, but the computers learned chess. You can program a computer to play every move because it's like 10 to the something, mm -hmm. but it's not 10 to the 359, which is, um, uh, go. So, um, they decided to teach it go. And so they, they showed DeepMind thousands and thousands and thousands of go games. Uh, on YouTube, because in, in Asia, this is a really, really big sport oh. playing Go. So it watched and it learned how to play the game. And then it started playing itself millions of times. And in the space of about a year, year and a half, it started to then play people online. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden within the Go community, everybody started saying, wow, there's somebody who's really, really <gasps> good. And that's when DeepMind said, well, it's us. Oh um, my it's AlphaGo. That's scary. AlphaGo. So AlphaGo was challenged by the number three guy in the world, the Go player in the world, a South Korean guy. And the South Korean guy said, you know, there's no computer who's going to beat me. Lost the first game. Got destroyed in the second game. Got killed in the third game. And there's a famous move in the third game. I think it's called Move 39 or something like that, mm -hmm. which was a move that nobody had ever seen before in this game because it's a very strategic game you can imagine if you've got yeah. 50 or 80 or 100 of your pebbles against 50 or 80 or 100 of your competitors pebbles and this move everybody said was unique and that was the real semblance of thought mm -hmm. you know because again you're not programming the computer to play it learned to play by watching all these games and yeah. it just accumulated all this knowledge anyway the Korean guy came back and won the fourth game and then got destroyed in the fifth game. So he lost four games to one. And 
then uh, the number one guy who was Chinese said, well, he's just a Korean guy, I'm Chinese, <laughs> I'm going to kick this, this computer's butt. And he, he lost three games to zero. Oh, no. So AlphaGo was then the number one player in the world. And these are people who have been playing this game their whole life, right? So then DeepMind had an interesting experiment. I wouldn't have thought of this, I don't think. They said, well, DeepMind learn by watching humans play. What if it never watched a human play? Can it teach itself? And how good would it be? I don't like where this is going. <laughs> in three days, just showing it the board and the pieces. It never seen the game played. It figured out how to play it. It played itself millions of times because remember, Machine speed is really fast, right? You guys know this even better than I do. In three days, it taught itself how to play. It then played AlphaGo, the world champion, and beat it 100 games to zero. Oh, God, we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> this, this just, it's making me really uncomfortable because if, like, if I'm making the right connections, it's like having a highly intelligent person's person with no emotion and with no contamination. Well, well now, so, I mean, I would, so these kind of things really interest me, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, so I would urge people to read a number of books. There's a book by a professor of, um, I don't know exactly what his, his title is, at, at Oxford University named Nick Bostrom. And, and about five years ago, he published a book called Super Intelligence. And it basically lays out this whole thing, you know, First of all, how did these things, how have they evolved? How are we designing them? Are we designing in emotions? Are we designing in empathy? Are we designing in human characteristics? Or are we just making these things cold and heartless? Mm -hmm. You know, and he, he, he doesn't attempt to lay it one way or the other. It's a very, it's a very objective overview and it lays out the, you know, the vast potential of, of these of these systems to really um, help us in ways that could fundamentally change the world. On the other hand, what are the risks? And the risks are significant. Um, and, and, you know, and there's no consensus one way or the other. I mean, within the AI community right now, this is a really big discussion. You have people who say we'll never achieve the singularity. They'll never achieve um, human level thinking. And because human brains are just too complex. You know, there, there's people like Roger Penrose and others who think our brains work at a quantum level, not a, not a digital or analog level. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, until we have quantum computers, you may not ever be able to mimic, you know, quantum consciousness as yeah. it's referred to. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, you have people who think we're close to being there and people who think we'll never get there. And, and it's somewhere in between. I mean, I, there's a lot of debate about, you know, the ethics of AI. I just and, wanted to ask. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of debate about the ethics of, you know, machines and humans' brains and, and you know, cell-based therapies and gene-based therapies and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and the debates around the ethics of AI are just as, as contentious. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I think there's a lot of concern. I think, you know... We see the power of having systems that can work at the speeds we've talked about and have the learning capability that we've talked about. But again, how do we employ them mm -hmm. or deploy them? Um, and do we ever actually just turn them completely loose? I mean, this is another debate we have. It's like, 
you know, can we design them up to a point and then they can't possibly evolve beyond that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the big fear is once they gain a certain level of intelligence, they'll start self-creating. Yeah. There, there is this theory I heard about that, like, w- of course, we're just a step in the evolution, just like Homo erectus was a step in the evolution sure. towards sure. getting to where we are now as human beings. Yeah. That the next step is something, something associated with AI, either um, some kind of symbiotic yeah. coexistence, like yeah. that we're just a step in the evolution and do that it's just we have to yeah it's natural this. to evolve yeah, into artificial yeah, yeah. in our nation yeah, yeah. to try to well, pro- this is, progress yeah, and again and this like, is where the machine brain interfaces come in right mm-hmm. you know yeah. we can start you know putting devices into our heads mm-hmm. you know i mean and that that could just be the next step in yeah. the evolution and i mean one yeah. of the things that, that we've thought a lot about particularly when i was you know chief scientist at ge was could you engineer an electronic eyeball you know for example you know as i said blindness is a, is a really big thing particularly in, in age-related blindness you know and if you if there's not much that you could do can you, is, is there a way that you could just literally put in a really high-powered camera in place of a in place of a retina that's what my line moody from harry potter did <laughs> yeah, yeah but i mean you know and why not i mean quite frankly you know the idea of being 80 and not being able to read anymore would, would drive me crazy, you know? Mm. And so if as long as the wetware is still intact, is there a way to link up an electronic eye to, to, to the existing optic nerve, for example? And I don't see any reason why not, you know? So I think, I think you will begin to see a convergence. Already people have pacemakers in their heart. We already have cochlear implants. Um, you know, people have... Um, you know, if they if they're I, I don't know exactly where this is at. I haven't looked recently, but you know, people have talked about making um, uh, artificial pancreata. You know, for for people with type one diabetes, mm-hmm. you basically have a an insulin pump, mm-hmm. but in, it, inside inside, yeah. but it but it, it's much better at monitoring glucose levels than than you know if you fingers, do it they, manually. Yeah. yeah, and so it automatically secretes a little bit of insulin here, a little you know, instead of one big you know. So you know, the idea of having electronic quasi organs. Is, is not so far-fetched. We already have some. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we'll, we maybe become, there's a term for this called cyborg. You know, mm-hmm. we may become more cyborgish yeah. than we want. I mean, I have a friend, he's got a stimulator in his brain for, for his PD. He's had for seven years, and he said, I don't even think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's part of me. But, you know, without that, I, I couldn't function. And so I, I, I don't think that's so far-fetched, you know. I mean, we basically are already cyborgs. We carry these phones around yeah, with us yeah, everywhere. Yeah. It's just that it's not implanted in yeah. our hand, yeah. but yeah. it's in our pocket yeah. but 89% but of glasses. the time. Yeah. You know, we've had glasses for so, 100 years or, or yeah. longer, you know? Yeah. I mean, hearing aids, you know, lots of people have hearing aids now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't worry about that so much. I mean, I... I mean, everything's dependent on quality of life and, 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 and how you age and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't want to be all wired up and be completely immobile and blind. I mean, that, that doesn't mm-hmm. to me to seem to be helpful. Um, but the AI stuff, you know, because it could become so pervasive in everything that we do. You know, it's, it's already in probably half the stuff that we read online is AI created. It's yeah. not even human editors and authors anymore. Um, you know, the banking industry is heavily, heavily dependent on AI for examining, you know, just looking through 
transactions to determine which of those are likely mm. to be fraud because again it's just you know really rapid pattern recognition yeah. um, and so you know it's already a big part of life the question is when it begins to move into things you know automation and robotics are going to replace millions of jobs mm -hmm. millions of jobs and maybe those are jobs you know some of them you know in much the same way that the industrial revolution and this is an analogy that, that a lot of people make who write about you know technology and evolution of technology you know they make the the analogy when the industrial revolution came to europe and displaced farming you know and we became more mechanized everybody said oh the farmers will all lose their jobs no they just reskilled and mm -hmm, retrained mm -hmm. in, in other in other areas and i think you know for a lot of these fields like in, in medicine i think people who read scans, pathologists and, and radiologists, they'll be replaced by AI pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, we already have surgical robots mm -hmm. um, that are not fully doing all surgeries. It's really, you know, kind of assisted yeah. surgeries. But robotic surgery has now become a really, really big business. Zico just had one. <laughs> yeah, on your eyes. Yeah. 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 Basically. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, so, you know, and, and maybe a lot of, you know, Amazon type jobs that, you know, really are drone jobs. Nobody really likes doing them. They're not intellectually satisfying. Maybe, maybe losing those jobs will not be such a huge loss, except for the fact that then what do people do for, for a living? And, you know, that raises the whole issue of, you know, having a living, um, what do we call it? Um, where everybody gets an allowance every yeah, month, yeah. regardless of how much or how little you work. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets yeah, a basic, basic in, yeah, universal uh, income. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, I mean, there are a lot of societal implications of all of, the, all of these technologies. But, you know, um, I mean, I've seen surgical robots in hospitals, or sorry, um, robots in hospitals that are, that are doing all of the heavy lifting of patients and, you know, moving patients around the hospital and stuff. Mm -hmm. Or like right now in the UK, because of Corona, hospital staffs are, you know, the surgeons are having to go upstairs to bring patients down to the operating theater because there aren't enough porters mm -hmm. and enough nurses to move patients in and out of uh, rooms into the, into the surgeries. And so, the, you know, the surgeons are having to do this because if they don't, the, you know, the surgery schedule gets completely screwed up. If you had robots, and, you know, the thing about robots is they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They never get sick. They never get tired. They don't go on holiday. They don't strike, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And for a lot of, you know, really manual, um, repetitive type jobs, um, they, could, they could revolutionize certain industries. But there will be losses. But um, there is also, like, everything is evolving. And there sure. are a lot of new jobs Exactly. Um, exactly. Create in creation every day. And exactly. Exactly. So I don't think that's going to be a very big problem. Or no, it's it's a it's a problem that, that people raise. Yeah. You know, as a society, you know, an impact on society, and 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 I agree with some of that. But I, but again, I think we're quite resilient. Mm -hmm. You know, if you just look we at what's happened, I think yeah. look at what's happened over the last year, for yeah. example. You know, if we if we adapted to this, I think we can adapt to just about <laughs> anything. So um, so I agree with you. I'm not I'm not so concerned about that. Um, as long as the opportunity for people to reskill and relearn is there. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and it, it impacts in a way, and uh, quite often I'm asked about, you know, will people now start to live forever and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, and I think life expectancy is increasing dramatically and, it, and will continue to do so. And I think all the things that we've been talking about will, will factor into that. 
But it's the same sort of thing. I mean, do you want to do the same job for 50 or 70 or 100 years? And I think, you know, people will, I think it will be a whole new way of living where you might, yeah. instead of having one family your whole life, you might have, you know, three different ones at different <laughs> stages in your life. And you may have three or five different careers mm. um, because you don't want to get bored doing the same thing. You know, do you want to be a lawyer or a, I don't know, a hairdresser for 70 yeah. years, you know? I don't know. I, I'm not sure I would. Uh, yeah, I'm either. on like my third or fourth career already. And, you know, so <laughs> uh, who knows? But I mean, I think all these things are really interesting because technology is advancing really, really rapidly. And if we just sit and watch, then we don't have any control over it. And yeah. I think it's really important for people, A, on the one hand, to understand what's happening or at least try to understand because I certainly don't understand everything. Um, and to at least see what's happening. Think about the consequences and then, you know, decide whether or not there's something we want to do about it. Either, you know, influencing our, our politicians or, you know, saying, no, I don't want this and let's mm -hmm. not let this happen. Um, you know, so I, it's, it's, you know, unfortunately, the, the technological genie is out of the bottle completely. And these yeah. things are coming really, really fast. Particularly, I think AI is, is something that people really need to, to understand and, and understand the arguments for and against it. Because I mm -hmm. think it's probably one of the biggest threats. That and, you know, bioengineering yeah. of, of new organisms and, you but know, potentially new pathogens and, and things like no that. There's no stopping that either, I think. No, like no. if someone decides at this point we don't want to do IA anymore, it's not it's not no, possible no, to no, shut it no, all no. off. But, but, you know, governments, I mean, there's, there's a big initiative in both in the U.S. and in the EU on the ethics of AI, there are, you know, committees being formed to basically inform the governments, you know, what are, what's happening and what are the risks? Benefit risk analysis, like everything. You know, we, we had these when we were talking about, you know, the earliest days of um, DNA and, and molecular biology, uh, you know, gene engineering technologies. We're having this about genetic engineering of embryos. Should you be allowed to, you know, design mm -hmm. an embryo, put genes in, take genes out. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is getting looked at very, very hard. And it's just, this is just another implementation of that. Um, but I think it's, I think it's crucial, you know, that society is informed and that society yeah. as a whole understands and, um, and that they, that they're engaged Because if you're not engaged, then, then you know, you can't sit and complain when things don't go the way you want it to. Oh, that's what everyone loves to do. <laughs> I know, I know. But I'm sorry, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna hear it. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. You know, look, I've been involved in, in getting two bills passed in Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one, one more directly responsible for, which was basically a new embryo bill based on some somewhat... <laughs> crazy ideas about making some different embryos uh, rather than just pure human embryos, making some, some chimeric embryos, for example, which is technically <laughs> much more complicated than I think we want to go into. Yeah. But, you know, I spent three years in Parliament and uh, working with, with both members of, of the House of Lords and the House of Commons, the Department of Health, the, the Minister for Public Health, to get a new law passed which would allow us to do what we wanted to do, but it would also regulate other stuff mm -hmm. that people had suggested that nobody had said that they wanted to do. But nevertheless, we, we, we stretched our brains as far as we could to think about what, what else would be possible and make sure that that was in the bill. So if people wanted to do this even more wacko stuff, as it was referred to, 
that they had to do it with a license and to do it without a license meant you went to prison for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, as a scientist, I never had any grand aspirations of spending three years trying to convince politicians that this is something that they should do. (laughs) But it it, it shows you that everybody, anybody can get involved in this process and you can implement some change if you believe strongly enough in it. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in, in public participation. As much as I'm a big believer in scientists getting off their ass, and, and going out and talking to people and informing people or at least trying to inform them of what's going on mm-hmm. yeah. and trying to, you know, trying to make sure that people understand the science. You know, there's so much misinformation now, so much conspiracy theories, <laughs> you know, oh fake, God. fake Maybe news. Facebook comments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, even just taking the, the vaccines that, you know, are out now. And the anti-vaxxers and the pro-vaxxers and just the whole level of misinformation that's out there. Mm. Um, you know. I, I mean, the most dangerous thing right now is probably the ignorance and the misinformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think about the COVID vaccines? So, I mean, I, this has been, as a scientist, this has been quite revolutionary. I mean, the idea of, of, of going from basically getting the molecular sequence of a virus in February or March and, and having vaccines approved and in use in less than a year is unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, the standard time to develop a new drug from the time that you say, here's my target, let's say it's this particular receptor on a, on a cancer cell. I'm gonna make a, a small drug against that to kill this cancer cell. From the time that you first start that to the time that you actually get it approved takes anywhere from seven to 15 years Whoa. at a cost of one, two, three billion dollars, depending on the drug and, and a number, you know, clinical trials and all that kind of stuff. So to be able to develop, you know, what do we have now? We have five, six, seven vaccines um, either approved here or approved in, in Asia. Um, is, is speed of light. I mean, it's really, you know, I don't like the warp speed thing, but it, but it's actually true. Um, you know, and the pharmaceutical industries come together. You've got companies working together to make vaccines for each other, even if they don't have their own. Um, you know, the governments have jumped in. So, you know, this is unheard of. Uh, you know, two of the vaccines, the one from Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, and the other one from Moderna, these are both first uh, time that these particular types of drugs have ever been in man. Um, they're completely brand new technology called RNA technology. Um, and so, you know, it's not even that we've made drugs that look like other drugs that we've made. We've actually creatively made two new whole different classes of, of biologics, which have a completely different mechanism of action. They're not even like anything we've ever made before conventionally. And they are the two if you do side-by-side comparisons, which is a little bit hard to do, to the two most effective uh, vaccines against COVID. So, uh, so that's amazing. It's really yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, and it just shows that when, when you know, quite proverbially, when the shit hits the fan, <laughs> you know, we can get stuff done if we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a lot, it takes a lot less effort than trying to move a boat that's stuck in the Suez Canal, but <laughs> it, uh, it's, um, it's, 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 it's actually from a scientific perspective, it's, it's quite a admirable achievement that we've made, you know, a Russian vaccine, a Chinese vaccine, four or five U S uh, European vaccines, and there'll be more, there are going to have to be more because 
with the variants that are appearing, not all the vaccines will be will work against all the variants that mm -hmm. are coming. Um, in particular, the South African one, as it's referred to, um, some of the uh, vaccines like J and J and AstraZeneca don't appear to work very well against mm -hmm. it, although they were quite effective against the original virus. So um, we probably will have to make some second generation vaccines that we may have to use as boosters. Okay. And I think someone, someone's analogy that we're going to have to learn to live with this just like we do the seasonal flu is, is probably true. Yeah. And again, you know, we, we've been lucky. This is the third or fourth type of virus that we've seen in the last 15, 20 years um, that has jumped from an animal species to humans. Mm -hmm. We had SARS in Hong Kong a few years ago, 15 years ago, I guess now. There was a, uh, a camel-related virus called uh, MERS. That fortunately was contained in Hong Kong. Uh, almost everybody died, but it was contained. When was this? I don't know. Oh, uh, two, 2005 or seven, I forget. It's called MERS, M-E-R-S. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another one, memory escapes me at the moment. So, you know, these, it's likely that these things are going to come rather routinely we've been yeah. lucky with ebola which is really a nasty nasty virus yeah. ebola kills almost everybody it infects um you know we've had dengue for a long long time these are both mosquito borne so uh you know we had zika a few years ago so you know which again you know it's hard to, it's hard to prevent transmission from mosquitoes yeah you know at least with with covid and and these respiratory viruses you know we can self-isolate we can mask but if you live in an environment where there are a lot of mosquitoes, I don't know how, you know, the only thing you could have is a vaccine. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's just showing us again that the, the world is, um, it's not as uh, predictable as, as we would okay. like for it to be. And, 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 you know, a pandemic like this can, can come out of anywhere. Mm. Um, I think we were lucky in Africa that Ebola was relatively contained. Um, but, you know, the way you know, people have been traveling and, and given, you know, the global economy and stuff, and people are moving all over the place and lots of them. It's, it's not unlikely that there'll be additional, um, you know, pandemics like this. Of course. Yeah, it makes sense because yeah. we, ha we just migrate so much. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also feel very lucky that this is not a very deadly virus um, because the next one might I don't know, yeah. turn us into yeah. zombies or kill us all yeah. together. Yeah. But yeah, um, I have one more question about sure. the vaccine. A lot of people are afraid of it because it has been um, um, made, it was made so fast. Yeah. Um, what are your arguments to, to these people or how do you explain to the maybe non-vaxxers or people who are afraid that it's okay to use the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, so I mean, I think the clinical trials were done for the most part well. There were some hiccups. AstraZeneca had a problem with dosing, for example, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the UK trial. Um, you know, the others, I mean, the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines are, are both really, really simple. They're just basically a, a droplet of fat with a piece of what we call messenger RNA inside them which, you know, basically causes your immune system to mount a big immune response against the spike protein on the virus. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're simple and, and they're, you know, we've been using these fat droplets in, in drugs for a long, long time. So what's unique is about what's inside the vaccine, not the, not the package. Uh -huh, okay. So that's where the, the, you know, the big breakthrough in the technology is. 
Um, and, they, and they seem to be really good at stimulating an immune response. And so the number of side effects against Moderna and Pfizer that I've read, and I keep a pretty close eye on this, as you know, I read pretty <laughs> exhaustively. Um, the side effects with those two RNA vaccines have been really, really, really low. The AZ vaccine, you know, there's, there's reports of them causing uh, some fatal blood clots. But the numbers actually, if you, if you look at the data really closely, they probably are unrelated to the vaccine. And if they are, it's a very, very rare side effect. Mm -hmm. I think the bigger problem with the AstraZeneca vaccine is that it's not as effective against the original uh, coronavirus. It's only about 60% effective uh -huh. compared to 90s for uh, Moderna and Pfizer. Um, and it seems to be much, much, much less effective against the South African uh, variant, which fortunately here we don't seem to have much of in Slovenia um, from the monitoring of the wastewater that's being done here mm -hmm. by uh, National Institute of Biology. The, the bigger problem now is the UK uh, variant is mm -hmm. here and it's becoming, uh, it's spreading rather rapidly. And the Pfizer, Moderna and AZ vaccines seem to work reasonably well against that. Um, J and J, we don't know yet. It, 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 J and J and the, and the AstraZeneca ones are based on quite standard vaccine technology. Mm -hmm. So it basically uses a, 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 a cold virus called adenovirus as the delivery unit. And lots of vaccines uh, use adeno. So this is, again, really standard. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, the clinical trials were done well. They were done fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, both the FDA and the European Medicines Agency have, over the years, um, gotten more flexible in allowing stuff to get go. You know, instead of spending a year reading paperwork and deciding whether or not to do a trial, here they, they did it very, very quickly. And they approved the trials very quickly because they realized the urgency of this. So I don't think any corners were cut. Um, you know, the data was obtained really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And again, we, we now have been vaccinating people for three, four months. Uh, to date, over half a billion people worldwide have been vaccinated as of last count. Um, and the number of side effects and deaths related to the vaccine, even, even maybe related to the vaccine, has been incredibly low. The biggest side effect I've heard about is that much like when, when some people get a flu jab, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you feel a bit flu-like for a day or so. Yeah, feverish. And, and that's your immune yeah. system kicking in, recognizing what's inside it. Yeah. I've heard of a few people who get a really vigorous response with either Moderna or Pfizer. My mom, my mom got Pfizer in America, and she, she had a mild response the first shot, but not the second. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine, she got the second Moderna jab, and she said she felt like she was on LSD for 48 hours. Really? Yeah, and so that's not a reaction against the vaccine. That's your that's your immune, immune system, system yeah. recognizing this thing as foreign, not mm -hmm. not the vaccine itself, but the thing inside it that's yeah. stimulating it to recognize corona, and that's your immune system beginning to kick in. So some people are arguing that's an even better response. If you get if you get sick from the vaccine, that means your body is really sensitized against the spike which is the major target of all these vaccines. Wow. This is, so that yeah. imagine, the, uh, imagine the virus is like a tennis ball with these little spikes sticking out on it. It needs those spikes to, um, 
to infect the cells in your lung and in your nasal passages because mm -hmm. it recognizes a receptor on cells in your lung. And so by stimulating an immune response against the spike, that's, that's where the preventative response is coming in. So um, I would urge people to get vaccinated. I will get vaccinated, definitely. Yeah. Um, you Us know, too. You know, and every, I think, you know, if we really want to see the end of this, if we all want to go back to a, hopefully we don't go back to the same lifestyle, but if we want to go back to a more normal social life, um, then I think everybody has to get vaccinated. Yeah. Do you think it will be mandatory at some point? Uh, I don't think you can, you know, again, we get back into the issue of personal rights and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, should, should, should we have vaccine passports? Um, I would not like to see the world come to that, but 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 then again, you know, like when I was a kid, and because we were we were living all over the world, you know, there were places that I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to go to without getting a jab for yellow fever or for mm -hmm. diphtheria or, you know, for German measles. Um, I mean, everybody used to get vaccinated. You know, we the, the standard story that people tell me here is the smallpox epidemic yeah, in Yugoslavia yeah. many yeah. years ago, where they vaccinated the entire population yeah. in, a, in a relatively short period of time. I would like to think that people don't want to live like this and, and don't want to see their grandparents, you know, in the hospital yeah. on a ventilator um, because of COVID. Because of COVID. Because yeah. of COVID. Um, I just, I just, sorry to yeah. interrupt no, you, no. but I just hope that people are, are going to be able to trust scientists and not mix science with politics because yeah. it's really not the same thing. And I think this trust is for us for common folk yeah. who don't know anything about this and thank you for clarifying sure. a lot of the things today but um i think trust plays a really big role in this whole pandemic and our government is not making it easy for us no. um, especially with regulating who gets which vaccine and so on yeah so yeah, yeah i just hope that people will find it within them to well trust blindly or do a leap of faith and just get the vaccine and Yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's, it's the only, I mean, it's really, do you respect your friends and do you respect your yeah, families exactly. and stuff? Because, exactly. you know, like you guys and like, and like all of us, we've all been self-isolating. We've all been keeping away from people. You know, we're trying to protect, you know, older people within our, our family and social organizations, you know, and I would never want to be the one that, you know, got somebody sick and ended up in the hospital same, same. and I've, i've had four or five scientific colleagues who are older who have been on ventilators um several friends here who have long covid this is not something you want you know mm. you know a year later to still be sick from yeah. this um so you know if if the vast majority of people get vaccinated you know we can put an end to this um but if we don't then there's you know there's the risk that it will come back and you know the vaccines we don't it's too early in the day to know how long they're going to be effective the data from pfizer suggests that people still have a good response six months after vaccination mm -hmm. but we just don't know yeah and then again we don't know how good the vaccines are going to be against any new variants that happen to come and the new variants will come while people are still infected and infectious once everybody gets vaccinated we you know then the virus gets killed yeah unless a new variant comes along. But once everybody's vaccinated, the virus can't infect anyone. Mm. You know, that's the whole reason for getting vaccination. You, you know, if you get infected, your body kills it off and you can't give it to somebody else. Mm. And so it, you know, becomes really, really, you know, it's a societal imperative that people get vaccinated. <clears throat> I understand, you know, that people have some mistrust, but 
you know, when you think of the consequences, um, you know, how many how many elderly people do we lose in this country? Mm. You know, of the of the four thousand people who have died, the vast majority of them are you know granddads and grandmas. Yeah. You know, and this is. Uh, Okay, there's nothing we could have done about it at the time, but but there's something we, we can, can do about it now. Yeah. And the people who haven't died, do we want them to die next year? You know, <laughs> yeah. and so I, you know, and but I think you know the scientific community and and some people are doing this. You know, um, my colleague Maya Ronaker at at NIB, she's routinely, you know, going on the on television from what I understand and talking about, you know, what's happening because we're monitoring the wastewater that's coming out of uh, various places in, in Slovenia and we're monitoring the amount of virus and which viruses are, are being, you know, secreted uh, by people when they go to the toilet. So it's a, it's a kind of an interesting way of, of tracking what's going mm. on. But, um, you know, the, the, you know, the amount of virus is, is still pretty high. And uh, the only way we're ever going to get out of lockdown and ever go back to having <laughs> quasi-normal life is if we if we eradicate the virus and we can only do that through vaccination that's how we eradicated smallpox that's how we eradicated polio yeah yeah i think currently everyone views vaccination very personally very selfishly no one is actually looking at the global outcome yeah yeah everybody yeah. thinks of themselves yeah like, yeah but if i don't get vaccinated i think i'll be fine even if i catch it no one's yeah, looking at it be. like you explained yeah. it yeah. like yeah. if everyone gets vaccinated yeah. we eradicate the virus yeah. mm-hmm. like but it really and, but, but you raise a really good point Jacob, because unless we vaccinate the entire world this is going to not disappear you know and this is mm-hmm. this you know this this vaccine vaccine um nationalism is really really unpleasant you know um you know uh, biden even uh, said oh we're not going to we're not going to ship any vi- vaccines overseas until we've inoculated all americans well that's you know quite frankly that's crap because all it takes is somebody flying from you know a country where there's not been any vaccination back into the us and you, you just you just start the problem up all over again mm. you know how did the uk variant end up in america you know it was basically isolated in kent and you know all it took were some people who you know managed to travel when they shouldn't have been and they brought it from the uk to uh, to the states um you know how did the how did the south african variant get here mm. how did the brazilian variant yeah. you know so you, you have to vaccinate the world it's it's not it's you know it's not a national problem but yeah i mean i think people have a social responsibility i mean or the alternative is is you just live in a bubble and you mm. don't you don't interact with people yeah but that's oh, i think This, we've had a bit enough yeah, yeah. um no i just i'm so fed up with people who are doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing just so they don't do the right thing mm-hmm. i mean it's I know. Po- completely pointless but anyway um yeah i think i think it's Oh my god, it's almost been an hour and a yeah, half. That's fine. We can um, we can stop. Yeah, we should leave it here and maybe talk some more some other time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, Happy to do that. It was really amazing to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So much. No, thank you guys. <laughs> okay, Jiga. Let weekend. Yeah, let weekend to the vam. Um are you going to do a quick goodbye thing with the Instagram uh, and oh <laughs> uh, my, my famous outro <laughs> yeah. thank you Steven okay, thank pleasure. you that was great thanks guys that thank fun. you yeah. really don't worry too much about AlphaGo Zero <laughs> <laughs> wait till the, wait till the
wait till it starts taking up ski flying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was amazing. Very interesting conversation. Also I'm very informing. Yeah. Informative. Infor what's the word? <laughs> Informative, <laughs> I think, is right. Yeah. Informative. Yeah, um, yeah I think we can... Uh, we can take some questions and like in a few weeks do this again with Steven. Yeah, Maybe we can do a follow-up if you have... I have a million questions, but I, I'm actually curious what kind of questions did we raise with you guys after hearing what he had to say? Because um, there's a million topics we can discuss with him at length. So what do you guys think? What are some of the topics you want us to touch on or you want to hear Steven's perspective? Yeah, just just um, let us know um, what questions you have, and uh, we'll address them sometime in, in the following months, probably or weeks. Yeah, well, okay. whenever we'll 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 set this up again. Yeah, and you can submit the questions either um, on in our DMs on Instagram. Yeah, on, yeah, Instagram. on Instagram. My Instagram is at zigadornik, and Nina's Instagram is at nina underscore tornik. Yeah. That's that's right. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys. Well, ha, we'll talk to you guys next week on Monday. I yeah. hope you have uh, you've had wonderful Easter holidays. It's Easter Monday today, right? Yeah. On Monday it's going to be Easter Monday. <laughs> I think. So, yeah. Um thank you and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.